0: Hello. Good morning.
1: <laughs> it's June 14th, 2020. I'm Sarah Firsty. I'm John. Thank you for joining our online service today. Thank you. We're so glad that you're watching. Whether you're an old timer, been around forever, or brand new around here, we appreciate you being here Welcome. today. I know that some of you are trying the new viewing party that's going on. If you're on that right now, hey hi. everybody. It's a new way we're experimenting with to watch the service together and feel a bit more connected. You may have noticed that almost every week we are trying new ways to foster this all-important connection that we feel is really the heart of the river.
0: Yeah, that's so true. It's not just rhetoric to us. It's really it's really all about connection, we say. And growing in our connection to God and to each other and even to ourselves, we really feel like that's what faith is all about. And there are many beautiful things about pursuing faith uh, from that perspective of a three-way connection. But one benefit I'd like to highlight today is what I might call uh, blind spot detection. Um, as human beings, we all have blind spots, right? We have areas of our lives that we really can't see accurately. And these could be areas that hold us back or even areas that perhaps harm other people all while we're blind to them, right? And Uh, We all have unseen, unrecognized, dark spots. You can call it sin, you can call it limitations, call it unresolved pain. Um, But one of the benefits of faith, especially an approach that prizes connection, is that it tends to reveal uh, those harmful blind spots and reveal them in a way that helps us move forward. And I think that's really important, especially nowadays. And these blind spots, they can show up on a very personal level, and also societal level, which is what I think is happening now.
1: Yeah, I think we're living in a powerfully prophetic moment right now. A moment that God is opening up for us Mm -hmm. as individuals and collectively to do some soul searching. Since the death of George Floyd and subsequent events, John and I are really trying to pause and take stock and to look at our own blind spots. And this video today is our attempt to begin speaking out as allies of the black community. We're not doing sermons right now. Instead, we're hearing from various voices within our community about how they're processing this moment of time as followers of Jesus. Our theme is how do we move forward? Where do we go from here? Last week, we heard from Don Giroban. He shared a very personal and practical message. In a moment, you'll hear from another fellow Riverwright about his perspective on things. I think you'll really enjoy hearing from John Pfaff today.
0: Yeah, we are truly excited to hear from Professor John Pfaff.
1: Um,
0: He spent a career studying mass incarceration, mass imprisonment, uh, prosecutorial stuff, criminal justice in general. And he's the author of the book, Locked In, The True Causes of Mass Incarceration And how to achieve real reform and so i think we can agree that he is uniquely suited to help us see things from a bigger perspective uh, to look at things from a macro structural systemic level but also as well as a personal heart level and i think we're in a a moment of time where we really need both Um, and so what's going to happen is we'll do an interview with john and then you'll hear his perspective and then we'll come back at the end with a couple closing thoughts um, but before we go to the interview of John, let's do this scripture reading that sets us up today. It comes from Luke chapter 23. Would you read?
1: Yes. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with Jesus. The crowd watched and the leader scoffed. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise.
0: Great scripture. All right, let's meet John Pfaff. Okay, hello, John Faff. it's great to have you. How are you doing today?
2: Good, thanks, how are you
0: guys?
1: Pretty good. Hanging out, hanging in there. It's good to yep. see you.
0: So, John, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what you're up to, a little bit about your family and whatnot.
2: Yeah. So I'm John. Obviously, we've been coming to the river now for oh, longer than you guys actually. We've longer been here than us, for more around, than
0: twelve years, thir- maybe yeah, thirteen.
2: Twelve, 13 years. thirteen years at this point. Yeah. Uh, in fact, last week Don said they found the church through the uh through the train campaign. Uh, Molly and I did as well just through the campaign before that one
0: the uh, very very first, uh, very first subway point. train campaign with the ads you guys were yeah. there so yeah,
2: yeah we're, really awesome. we're, we we just moved to New York City about a year before we were looking for a church um, we both grew up very very mainline she was Presbyterian I was as mainline as they come as Episcopalian uh, yeah. none of those really worked for us but we saw this church with ads with like Darwin quotes on them like all right well <laughs> Darwin yeah. yeah
0: um,
2: and so, yeah, so, you know, I, I, my wife is Molly. We have three kids, uh, the 10-year-old Carter and Nathan and Nora, who are seven-year-old twins. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a law professor at Fordham.
0: Very nice. And how have you guys been weathering the, the, the storm, the COVID-19 era of coronavirus, how it's been for you as a family?
1: It's been
2: decent. I would say, you know, I think I started teaching my first class probably about 20 years ago as a grad student. Uh, So I've been spending my whole life doing little more than teaching. Uh, So it's been humbling in a matter of two months to discover that I have absolutely no ability whatsoever to teach young children. Uh, Put me in a room full of 90 law students and I barely break a sweat. Give me two seventh graders and I'm like sobbing by the end of the day. Uh, in, in total, just utter defeat. Uh, so that has been humbling, right? I realized that professors and teacher. teachers are two very different jobs. I'm a professor. I'm not a school teacher. Uh, if the teachers don't all demand 4 million percent raises when this is over. They're crazy because my- It's your moment. Not just because I just need my kids out of the house, but my respect for what they do has always been high, but it's stratospheric now that they, they can teach young children anything is just- Amen, Amazing.
0: amen. Thank you to yeah. our teachers and yes, admins. Absolutely. And oh, good lord! Now, my recollection is that you, you you mentioned you grew up in the Episcopal Church, but is it true that you were uh, part of the <laughs> choir, right, as a
2: kid?
1: There's a rumor there's out there. Literally, there's a literally rumor that you have
0: a falsetto that matches, uh, you know, the very best of all time. Is that? No, actually,
2: the the, the cathedral i went to in buffalo they actually one of the last surviving men and boys choirs in north america it's, it doesn't exist even now in that form anymore and so yeah i was literally a choir boy um and so yeah i i from the age of 10 until i graduated from from high school i, I sang in the men and boys choir first as like no one of those little angelic trebles uh and then <laughs> later on as a teenager less less of that but <laughs> right
1: is there yeah. footage out there of that you- there is
2: nothing that works on modern technology. Uh, we have large boxes of you know cassette tapes that my dad dutifully recorded every concert, uh, but they sit in a box because we have no idea how to play them at this point. You might actually be able to bail us out there, John, but
1: there is no surviving <laughs>
2: right. video footage that with which I can be mocked. I have to a generation that's very lucky um, that we're computer savvy, but. Our lives weren't documented when we were young. Uh, so it's very, very hard to find that incriminating Facebook photo from when I was 10. Well, maybe in this
0: instance, it's best just to imagine you as the young boy singing that high falsetto in the, in the choir. That's that's how I'm going to picture things from yeah. here on out. Yeah. Well, Sounds we're really, really excited that you're able to continue this theme of how to move forward, right? the uh, We've been in it for a while, and the original idea was how to move forward in the midst of the coronavirus, which is... Uh, There's plenty to talk about there, but now it's shifted into a um, bigger, broader, deeper question. How do we move forward in the midst of uh, the racial injustice that has once again raised its ugly head, and uh, how can we better move forward as allies of the Black community? And um, We're so excited to be on this journey, and it feels like uh, so much to learn, and we're excited to do it, and excited to have you speaking today. Thank you for
2: doing it. Yes, uh, thank, thank you
1: so much,
2: John. Thank you, John and Sarah for, uh, for asking me to do this today. Thank you to all of you for, for listening today. Uh, I know as I just mentioned with John and Sarah, I'm a professor at Fordham's Law School and I'm pretty sure the reason why they've asked me to come talk today is because I spent the past probably 20 years with my research focused basically on, on one single question which is trying to understand how we develop the system of mass incarceration and, and mass punishment that we have and what can we do to, to get back from it. Um, I could easily spend the next four hours without a break or even really taking a breath talking about how our, you know, our nation's 250 year history of, of racism and classism and puritanism and racism again have interwoven themselves so toxically with so many economic and political and sociological and psychological factors to get us to where we are today, um, but I don't want to do that. I mean, I do want to do that. That's all I kind of ever want to talk about. But but I won't do that. Um, what I want to do is really think about the method, the title of this series, right? Like, where do we go from here? And one thing that's happened is that as I started talking more publicly about prisons and prison growth is at the end of any talk I give there's always this one question that's has that always oftentimes kind of Been hard for me to answer which is someone gets up and says this all makes got it. I see what you're saying But like what can I just the average person do? And it's been a hard question for me to answer a lot because most of my stuff as a social scientist I am focused on these giant structural causes of why we're here and, you know, and unless you're a city council person or on you know, a state senate finance committee, there's not much we can do in our daily lives to, to roll back the, the, the perverse structure that we've created over all, all these years. Um, and so that's kind of what I want to talk about, right? It's like, what can we just in our day-to-day lives do? Right? And there are some very easy answers, right? You know, we should vote and not vote for, you know, we should vote for everybody, but you know, pay attention to those really boring down ballot races like your local sheriff and your local judge and your local prosecutor. They matter a lot more than the president and your congressperson. Donate and not necessarily like the ACLU, but these bail funds that help make sure people who have a $5 bail and can't get out of jail actually can get out of jail. Right or even if you want to protest, like there have been a host of laws in the past three weeks that a month ago were never going to change, and now they are, and it's because people are out on the street, showing that 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 they're angry, um, and demanding change, and the politicians are are listening. Um, but I want to really talk much more about something that I myself wrestle with every single day, and it's sort of, you know, for all the policy failures that. Driven our system in in the end, it's not a policy failure. It's it's a moral failure, and and at the heart of that moral failure is the fact that we fundamentally dehumanize the people who come in contact with the criminal justice system. That the moment you are arrested, or charged, or convicted, or or sentenced, you cease to be this complex, complicated. Person capable of good and bad, you are collapsed down to nothing more than your mugshot, you know, your ID number and your rap sheet of all your prior criminal history, and that that that's it. Um, and that dehumanization kind of drives everything, and it lurks in all of us, and I mean all of us. Um, you know, I think one. Really striking way to see just how it operates is this experiment a colleague of mine, Heather Ann Thompson does, who's a historian at Michigan, does with, with her students. And she asks them a question on the first day of class. Think of someone you love, mother, father, brother, sister, someone incredibly close to you. And now imagine a horrible crime, murder, rape, an incredibly violent physical assault. Imagine happens to that loved person, that loved one of yours. What punishment do you think is the right punishment? And obviously you get incredibly aggressive answers, right? 20 years, 50 years, life, life without parole, death, torture the person, right? They're incredibly angry, visceral responses. And then she asks her second question. Same person, same crime. But this time imagine that that person is the perpetrator, not the victim. And the answers immediately change. The people don't want nothing. They don't let them walk. But 50 years, life without parole, execution, those collapse back to 3, 4, 10 years, something restorative, something rehabilitative. That the, the compassion comes back. And it comes back because we see our mothers and our fathers and our brothers as people, as full, complex people. We don't view people in the criminal justice system that way. And that allows us to be destructive to them. Right? And 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 this dehumanization there's there's a whole vast literature on the psychology behind it. This is a very common thing that happens in a whole wide range of cases, but it becomes distinctly more toxic when we introduce race into it because not just in criminal justice, but in every aspect of life. Medical care, housing, employment, at both the individual person-to-person micro level and a much more macro social interaction community level, there's tragic but well-documented evidence that white people always view black people as just slightly less than human in almost all contexts. That their pain and their joy, their lives, their complications and their messiness count less and are worth less and are appreciated less. And so it makes it so much easier when they come in contact with the police or the criminal justice system to strip away all of that humanity and to collapse them to nothing more than just that bad act. And when they are nothing more than that bad act, um, it becomes much easier to to abuse and harm and kill them because of. I'm not the kind of person usually who has, you know, the immediate Bible story on call to say, hey, and here's a relevant Bible story directly on point. But this is one case where I actually sort of do. It's a small one. It's exactly two verses from just one of the four Gospels. Uh, So it's not some giant long account and it's not a major portion of it. But it's it's the way Luke tells the story of Jesus on the cross next to the two other men. I know one Gospel doesn't mention those two men at all. Two more, they're just set pieces silently there next to Jesus. But in Luke, they actually talk. Uh, one insults Jesus, uh, but the other doesn't, right? And these are men that are for robbery or rebellion. It's something violent. It varies based on translation. And he says, one of them says, No, Jesus, please remember me when you get to heaven. And what has always struck me about that story is not what Jesus says, so much as what he doesn't say. Right? He doesn't ask the man why he's up there. He doesn't make any reference to his crime. He just says, in short, sure. Right? Okay, absolutely. Right? Because he sees the man up there as, as a man, as a person, as a human. He has done something wrong, yes, but he hasn't been collapsed to being nothing more than that. And in fact, Jesus doesn't care why he's up there. He doesn't ask why he's there. Uh, and I think the problem we have is that we always ask why they're there. And not just ask why they're there, but reduce them to nothing more than the reason why they're there. Now it would be easy at this point to spend the next several hours just laying out how that dehumanization translates into some of the most painful and shocking and disturbing incidents out there, right? Whether it's the way in which the police, you know, killed George Floyd over nine minutes of standing on sitting, you know, kneeling on his neck until he died, unable to breathe. Right? Or to me, you no, know, there's always been the story of Terrell Thomas, who is a man held in jail in Minneapolis, Milwaukee, sorry clearly suffering from a severe mental health problem. Uh, the jail officers put him in solitary, uh, cut off all the water to a cell, uh, and then ignored him over the next six days as he painfully and slowly died from dehydration. Right, And you can't do that unless you don't view the person as a person. Uh, U.S. prisons, unique amongst those prisons, will shackle women while they give birth. You can only do that if you view her as something like closer to an animal than a person. But the fact is, again, where do we as people go from here? Right, We're not usually the ones killing people in jail. We aren't the ones who have the control over how someone's treated while giving birth in, in, in a prison. That's, that, that's not for most of us where we have some amount of, of control. And more important, in some ways, those are more the symptoms than the disease, right? Think, think, think of it as like a, like a charcoal briquette, right? You know, there's those bright flames dancing around it when you first start the, the, the fire and, and those are hot and the, that's kind of like the murders of George Floyd and Terrell Thomas. Right? But what really makes the charcoal briquette dangerous is that part inside, the the hot part inside that you can't see when the flames die down, but it's just there, slowly simmering and burning and heating everything up, and it doesn't take much when the briquette is not on fire for that to just burst back into flames again, right? And and that that sort of deep dehumanization that that's in all of us. It's in it's in all of our hearts and. I, and I include very much myself in this. As someone who talks about this all the time, I also know I wrestle with this every single day of my life. Right? And it operates in incredibly invisible and insidious ways. And I think it's helpful to think about, to give some examples of, sort of just how it invisibly lurks and the way in which you sort of fueled this burning, smoldering in dehumanization and inhumanity every day without necessarily even realizing it. Right, so you know, here are a few examples. Right, one, about a year ago, the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Fund decided it was going to bail out every woman and child from New York City's jails. Put aside the fact I just talked about bailing children out of jail, which is a whole other uniquely American thing. Right? This is viewed as kind of a big deal. They're going to bail out about six or 700 people. And there was a huge New York Times article on it, 17, 18 paragraphs long, ran in the print edition, not some sort of minor squib article. And, you know, and, and the article followed uh, what is now to me a very unsurprising pattern. Right, They lay out the policy. They quote from the head of the RFK fund about what why they're doing this. And then you know the police weigh in anonymously, saying that this is a terrible idea. It's going to lead to more crime. All the prosecutors weigh in actually by name saying this is a terrible idea it's going to lead to more crime uh, the public defenders now get quoted saying this is a, this is not a terrible idea it won't lead to more crime and then the article kind of ends fast forward a month the bailout comes to an end uh, the New York Times writes a follow-up article uh, about the bailout um, and it's basically you know quotes the police as saying well I guess a lot of crime didn't happen, it quotes the DA's as saying, I guess we got lucky this time, it quotes the, prosec- the public defenders as saying, see, we told you crime wouldn't go up, and then that's it. But again, 15, 16, 17 paragraphs, ran in the print edition, not a throwaway piece. As I've described it, I'm sure lots of you are thinking, okay, like what's wrong with that? And the first time I read it, I read it, up, okay. But then I realized what the article wasn't saying. At no point across 30-some paragraphs of valuable printed newspaper real estate, they talk about what it meant to those people being bailed out to be able to go home for Thanksgiving, they didn't interview a single mother saying, I had my son home for Thanksgiving. I will have my son home for Thanksgiving. It didn't interview a single woman saying, I will be home with my children for Thanksgiving or I will be able to get therapy because I'm not sitting in Rikers, which is a miserable place to be. And when the bailout was over and the RFK fund only bailed out about 120, 200 people, there was no one interviewing those who did not get bailed out saying, what did it feel to be a woman or a child stuck on Rikers over the holiday season? Their lives were completely and totally in. An utterly invisible to us, right? Because they didn't count crime, our fears, my life. That's what the New York Times talked about. But the lived experiences of those for whom the bailout was intended, their lives, their families' lives, their experiences, irrelevant, right? They weren't human and they didn't count. And we internalize that so deeply that we didn't even think to ask if they count. And the first time we read the article, we might not even realize that we're just writing them out of the picture altogether because they don't really exist for us. Another example, and this is one that we're all gonna be seeing in the days and weeks ahead as this defund policing movement surprisingly seems to be catching fire. The defenders of the status quo are going to po- point to a whole stack of papers showing that policing is cost-benefit justified, that roughly every dollar we spend on policing produces dollar sixteen reduced crime, and therefore to argue for defunding police is to argue for making the world worse. I've read these papers, they're good papers, but it's essential to understand what that $1 in police spending is. It is the $100 billion in tax revenue that we spend every year on police. And to someone like me, you know, a, a, a white guy living in a fairly safe part of Park Slope, that really is kind of the cost-benefit analysis that informs my daily life, right? I've had exactly one interaction with NYPD. I called them once when my got, when I got robbed. They showed up. They were very polite and gentle and kind to me because who I am, right? And then they went and they got my wallet back. And so, you know, I... Paid some dollars in New York City, I got some return on that dollars. That's exactly what this thing is measuring. But understand what it's not measuring. These studies, $1 in, $1.60 out, they don't count George Floyd's death. They don't count the fact that, again, in Milwaukee, um, after the police brutally beat a man who had nothing to do with any crime at all, 911 calls to the city dropped by 100,000 over the next year because people were just terrified to call the police. What is the cost of that fear? What is the long-term psychological, physical, and mental harms of parents having to have the talk with their kids? Of wondering every time your child walks out the door that he might not come back or if they do come back they will have been traumatized by some needless interaction with the cops. None of those costs count. During the peak of stop and frisk, something on the order of 85 to 90% of all black men aged 18 to 24 in New York City were stopped by the cops at least once a year, thrown against the wall, in front of their friends, in front of passerbys, frisked, treated like a suspect. It, that's that's an apartheid level of, of, of sort of police interactions, and our cost-benefit analyses don't cost those out, right? The government doesn't care, and quite frankly, academia doesn't really care because the people writing those studies look exactly like me, and their interactions with the police are exactly like mine. And the costs those police do to human lives, they don't figure into our cost-benefit because we don't always view those lives as lives fully that deserve our effort to track down that data to include it in these, these studies. I guess the last example I have in some ways is is the most cautionary of them all. Because one thing we've seen a lot of lately, there has been perhaps more often than in the past, rich white men being sent to prison for various things in various high-profile kind of ways. And every time some rich white man gets sent to prison, you see the same outrage generate itself, right? The white rich white guy gets three years in prison and someone will immediately point out correctly, like, look, here's a black woman who got 15 years for doing one-tenth the bad stuff this white guy is getting two years for. And the implicit message in that outrage is they all deserve 15 years, right? But that's completely backwards. And there's a really troubling story lurking in that to me as someone who has made that point and then fought hard to, to, to undo that thinking just in, in, inside my own self, right? If there's anyone whose humanity is going to be appreciated by the white prosecutors and the white judge and the white sentencing, right, sentencing you know, probation board coming up with the sentencing recommendation it's the rich white guy. He is the person we best can kind of put ourselves in... His shoes to understand his complicated life. He looks like us, he talks like us, he seems like us, he is like us. I understand his complicated life intuitively, and so I sense him accordingly. And so to demand that we punish the rich white guy as harshly as the black woman is to say, I'd much rather just dehumanize the white guy than humanize the black woman, right? That is just easier to dehumanize than humanize. That to humanize the black woman to say, oh, wait. She really only deserved two years, and we should create a system, or no years, right? But we should create a system that pushes it to two years, requires us to do this really hard work, really, really hard work of viewing her entirely and completely as a human. And rather than doing that, we'd rather just take the easy way out and view the white guy as not a person, right? as less, as deserving of just being broken and destroyed as everyone else is. Um, because humanizing other people is hard, and it's... Guilt-ridden work, right? We are forced to take into account all the times, both broadly and in our personal interactions day to day. We have failed to do that, and we all have. But we have to do that hard, painful, emotionally draining work of, of of humanizing, right? So, what can we do? I mean, just being aware of it, I think, is is a huge step. But there's something I've done a lot myself that it's almost risen to the level of a of a almost spiritual exercise for me of how do I talk about people involved in the criminal justice system. And what I do, and there's been a big push to get people to do this more, is to always make sure you center the fact that they're a person. Right? I never say or I try not to say it. It it slips in all the time because again this this demonization is, is deep and pervasive and subtle, and hidden, and so hard to overcome. So I'm by no means myself at all great at this, but I try every day to make sure that... I never say a word like convict or inmate. I say a person in prison, right? I never say a violent criminal. I say a person convicted of violence, you know, a person involved in the criminal justice system. But to always, always lead with that word person, right? Because at some very subtle level, it forces me every single time I say it to remind myself that this is, first and foremost, a person. Perhaps a person who's done something incredibly awful, perhaps something incredibly destructive, but they remain still, first and always, a person. And each time I say a person in prison, a person who's been to prison, a person convicted of violence, I I hope that some level it kind of dampens it just a little bit, that sort of smoldering dehumanization lurking inside of me, right? And that when I say it to someone else, it kind of dampens it a little bit in them too. And they might not even realize it, but it sort of forces us to just daily reflect on, on their humanity and the ease with which we dehumanize them. And, and even more, right? some studies suggest that up to a third of all Americans either themselves or have someone close to them has at least been arrested or been to jail, if not been to prison, right? And by using that kind of language that humanizes the other person, you welcome those people in, in a way that they might not be used to being welcomed, right? That you're not, that you tell them, almost without drawing attention to it, that you are not centering that one bad thing they or their loved one experienced. And given how many people have been ground through the system, you might not even realize, none of us might realize how often we're talking to someone who themselves has been or knows someone who has been in the system. And to use that kind of language that reminds them that they or the person they love is is in your eyes and all of our eyes a person first it could be an incredibly powerful spiritual moment for them as well, as much as, as one as one for us. And and you know it's 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 a small thing, but hopefully it's the kind of thing that can help us, you know, try as best we can to, to, to not ask the questions that Jesus was very careful not to ask uh, in, in in his final moments as, as well.
0: Wow. Thank you, John. So Thank appreciate you. hearing from you. And uh, I'll tell you personally, one thought that's going to stick with me is this notion of dehumanization, the sin of dehumanization and how we want to would we repent of that and really begin to see each other, to rehumanize Uh, in order to reflect the endless compassion of God for one another. And I love how you mentioned that. One way we do that is with our language, by always making the choice to acknowledge and affirm other people's personhood um, and seeing that as a spiritual discipline. Great thoughts. Thank you so much for sharing.
1: And related to that, I've been thinking about how the incarnation of Jesus was a complete and total affirmation of what it means to be human. Hmm. For God to become a human being in Jesus means that we are all on equal footing, equally loved and cherished, Mm. equally valuable, and we all have equal dignity. In his classic book, The Cost of Discipleship, the anti-Nazi theologian Diedrich Bonhoeffer says this, In the incarnation, the whole human race recovers the dignity of the image of God. Henceforth, any attack even on the least of men is an attack on christ who took the form of man and in his own person restored the image of god in all that bears a human form through fellowship and communion with the incarnate lord we recover our true humanity and at the same time we are delivered from that individualism which is the consequence of sin and retrieve our solidarity with the whole human race. With that in mind, let's pray. God, thank you that you have restored our dignity and that in you we can recover our true humanity and retrieve our solidarity with the whole human race. Spirit, empower us to look inside and examine our hearts and see what we can't see without your help. And please do this so that we can be active participants with you, Jesus, in ending social racial injustice and bringing your kingdom of peace and hope and life to this world,
0: amen. Amen, thank you. Thanks for watching. Hey, before we send you off, one last announcement. I wanna mention something new that is starting up this week, this Thursday, a new group, a new Zoom meetup, and it's called Brave Space. Brave Space is going to be a six-week gathering, and the goal of Brave Space is to have what we might call difficult but necessary conversations regarding injustice, inequality, oppression, and it's a series that is specifically intended for white people, for non-black people of color. However, everybody's welcome if you want to check it out. And we would want to mention up front that in order to facilitate bravery and trust in this group, we are asking people to commit to a 6 weeks, if at all possible, as many as possible, of the sessions in order to uh, make some progress. It's gonna be led by Allison Noel and Clara Park. It's on Thursday nights. It's kicking off this week. Love to have you be a part of that or any of the other uh, opportunities that are around the river to connect. We really do want to hear from you. So join one of the weekly calls. Uh, leave a comment right here. Um, give us a thumbs up. Uh, Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Send us an email. Whatever it is, please do stay in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much for watching.
1: See you next week.
0: Bye-bye.